Hi, Dave Emmer here. This is For the Record Program number 1283. Interview number 20, count them 20, with Jim Eugenio about the JFK Revisited. I almost said that's the name of trade. Uh, this is being recorded on January 13th of the year 2023. And once again, it is my pleasure and privilege to be joined by Jim Eugenio, the author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed, and also the book, JFK Revisited, which in turn is uh, a supplemental and a compilational companion to the two- and four-hour documentaries, JFK Revisited and uh, JFK Destiny Betrayed, that were produced by or directed by Oliver Stone. And Jim Eugenio has written the uh, screenplays for those documentaries. Jim, welcome back to our airwaves. Nice to be here, Dave. Uh, Before we get into the substantive discussion, I want to note some corrections uh, from earlier uh, discussions. In our talks with David Talbot, I mentioned that Paul Blow uh, said that three of the people with whom or two with whom Lee Harvey Oswald interviewed for jobs worked for Clay Shaw. No, they knew Clay Shaw. Yes. Which is significant. Another correction I want to make, uh, in talking about Stefan Bandera and how his assassination was linked by the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations to the alleged you know, Soviet plot to kill JFK from Department 13 and Valery Kostikov and Lee Harvey Oswald. I mentioned that Yaroslav Stetsko, who was the uh, World War II head of state for the collaborationist government in Ukraine, became, succeeded Bandera. He did eventually, but not till 1968. There was a uh, nine-year uh, interval there. And in what I had, I don't know where I got the idea that Anderson Cooper was the son of Koki Roberts, who was, was indeed Hale Boggs' daughter, but he was not. I think it was Abigail Van Buren, uh, Gloria Vanderbilt. Who, right, uh, was, right. He's a Vanderbilt heir. Yes, right. Yeah, I don't know what in the world. Uh, I guess I'm getting old in my old age, but uh, I don't know I, how I, I, I don't know how I let you get away with that. Well, it, it, it was an example of being kind to animals. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I just... That, I mean, seen, that's that's a real blooper, you know. It is. It is. I don't know how in the world I, I messed that up, but I did, and I'm correcting it for posterity. Okay. Uh, you know, Jim, uh, you might uh, want to expound on... And, and, and again, referencing Clay Shaw and the material that we did in uh, Destiny the Trade, the significance of Lee Harvey Oswald applying for jobs with three different people in the summer of 1963, all of whom were acquaintances of Clay Shaw, because even though I erred in claiming that they worked for Clay Shaw, uh, they did know Clay Shaw, and I think that is, uh, and obviously Paul Blow felt that is more than a little significant. See, I don't have the exact names in front of me, but Paul did this terrific digging into the international trademark. Okay, who ran it, 
who worked there, who had offices there, etc. Now, Clay Shaw had a terrific reach in New Orleans, okay, because of both his overt uh, status as being the uh, chairman of the International Trade Mart, which was a very important uh, commerce piece of com- commercial real estate and also in the commerce trade. And also because of his covert side of supporting the uh, anti-Castro-Cuban exiles. Okay. He was, he tried to use one to disguise his status with the other, but there's very little doubt. In fact, in my opinion, there's no doubt that Sean knew Oswald. All right. And we have, you know, um, I actually did an article about this on the Kennedy's and King website where Shaw, uh, met a couple of gay gentlemen who were, uh, who used to come to New Orleans from Texas. Okay. And they, this was around 1973 or 74. Okay. When Shaw was out of, out of Garrison's, uh, you know, sites. Okay. And, and, when this one gentleman found out that he was meeting Shaw, Shaw showed up very elegantly dressed. He said with beautiful cufflinks, okay, a, a, a wonderful tapered suit, all right, piercing blue eyes, and he came with a woman, all right, and they were waiting for them when they arrived. And so he didn't know that they were meeting Clay Shaw, his friend was a guy who knew Shaw, all right, uh, and his friend was in the interior decoration business, and this is how he knew Shaw, because Shaw was, a, as everyone knows, was in the property business. He used to buy old homes in the French Quarter and then redecorate them, all right, and sell them for a profit. And so when he heard Clay Shaw's name, he said, oh, oh, he said, well, did you ever meet Oswald? And he said, yes, more than once. He goes, and what did you think of him? He goes, kind of a quiet gentleman. You know, he was always on his best uh, when he was around me. Okay. Uh, and I knew who he really was. All right. And so, <laughs> and so of course, uh, and by the way, people try and say that that couldn't have happened because Shaw had a civil suit going on against Garrison at this time. Well, here's the problem with that. Alicia Long, a huge Shaw defender, admitted in her book, okay, that Shaw did not have any confidence in that suit and he didn't even think that his lawyers were ever going to file it, okay, because they didn't have any confidence in it. And, of course, it failed when they finally did after he was dead. All right. So th- th- this is why he would be kind of open about something that was he thought was behind them now. All right. And so the other piece of evidence, of course, is the uh, the visit by Shaw, Ferry and Oswald to the Clinton Jackson area, uh, about 100 and some miles north of New Orleans. We We didn't get this in the movie, although we talked to one of the witnesses, Edwin McGeehee who uh, was the first guy that Oswald met on his visit up there, all right? And there there was actually 
a photograph that Garrison had. Uh, I believe Shaw was outside the car. Okay, I think Oswald was in line registering the vote. Uh, Shaw was leaning up against the car, and Fury was in the car. He didn't. He didn't enter the thing into evidence because he didn't think the resolution on the picture was uh, powerful enough. All right, and then there's the whole incident of Oswald leafleting outside the International Trademark. Okay, which on that one, uh, two Cubans, Caraga and Bringier, actually supplied Shaw. Excuse me, actually supplied Oswald with the flyers he was supposed to use the leaflet that day. And then his right-hand man, Shaw's uh, right-hand man, his aide-de-camp, whose name escapes me right now, but he had been at the previous incident, and he noticed that Oswald had listed 544 Camp Street on the last page of the document. He sent that to the FBI with the last page pointed out and the address circled, all right? So these links we have today and that Paul has done such a marvelous job on, you know, there's there's all this stuff that, that puts Shaw precisely in this web, okay, in New Orleans, in, in which, of course, I think I've mentioned this before, so important, this so such a tremendous piece of evidence that the FBI and the CIA were running anti-Fair Play for Cuba Committee campaigns that summer. Deke DeLoach was the guy running it for the FBI, and David Phillips and Jim McCord were originated the project for the CIA. Okay, um, I believe, I think it's William Kent. There were two brothers who worked for the CIA out of the Jamway station. One was Alan, one was William. I think it's William once said at a Thanksgiving uh, celebration at his house, which he had too much to drink at, he once said, literally, that Lee Harvey Oswald was a useful idiot. Okay, I don't see how it can get any more clear than that. Okay, uh, that's clearly what he was. He was a useful idiot in the hands of these people who were manipulating him. Um, the distinction that I have made, well, the, the uh, qualification, uh, we've noted many times in the past that a standard rhetorical dismissal of any motion that, uh, and, and, and frankly, the JFK assassination was a coup d'etat, but it is dismissed by saying, you know, and eh, that's conspiracy theory. And yet, when one looks at the relationships between these various supposedly unconnected characters, such as the three Shaw acquaintances with whom Oswald applied for jobs in that fateful summer of 1963, we are looking at networking, which I think is a much more useful uh, description. It also sidesteps all of the 
uh, invasively evocative emotional overtones. You know, oh, that's conspiracy theory. You know, ugh, make sure you don't get any on your shoes. And, uh, I think that's, a, that's an important term. Uh, Jim, in mid-December, there was another release of documents by the federal government and Joe Biden. Uh, Jefferson Morley, who figures in not only the documentaries, but also in the supplemental interviews, has commented critically on the nature of the documents that were released and has opined that potentially some of the most uh, important material has been withheld. I wonder if you would develop that for us. Well, I, I think Jeff's correct on this score. And I think that's why he's part of the Mary Farrell Foundation lawsuit that's going ahead in Northern California, your area, your neck of the woods, all right, uh, through Bill Simpich, okay, as the main guy, and Tink Thompson and Gary Aguilar are also named on the suit. Because I don't think that even though they're breaking the law, and, and let's make no bones about this, they're literally breaking the law, okay? And I can prove this. See, there's two phrases in legal terms, breaking the spirit of the law, breaking the letter of the law. They're doing both. All right. Now, why do I say that? Because, as you know, Dave, and most of the people listening to your show know, this problem should not be around today. It should have been solved in 2017. That was the letter of the law. That 2017 would be the year in which everything would be declassified. Everything. There would be no redactions on anything. And the only person in America who could have stopped that from happening was a president. So after Trump talks about, oh, I'm so glad to be releasing all these Kennedy documents, what does he do? On the day that they were all supposed to be declassified, uh, he did one of his pivots, okay, and said, well, you know, let's delay this for six months. So he delayed it for six months. And then he, after that was up, he said, let's delay it for another three years. And he did. He kicked the can down the road for three years. So Biden comes in, and what does he do? The same thing. Except he did, oh, let's give him credit. He did declassify 1,400 pages. At least he said he did. I'll get to that in a minute. All right? All right, now, there's supposed to be another one coming up, right? There's supposed to be another one coming up. I think it's this July. So he's already preparing, and I know this for a fact, he's already preparing to dodge that bullet also. All right. So let's talk about Jeff Morley. It always breaks me up when these people in the media talk about things which they don't do any research on and neither do the people they work for, all right, or with, all right. So they talk about all these pages being declassified. Well, in the broadest sense, yes, they are. But they're not being declassified unredacted. And I know that because I've seen some of them. All right. For example, there's a letter that Arthur Schlesinger wrote 
to JFK. Because JFK was trying to reorganize the CIA. Right? In addition to firing the top level, he wanted to actually reorganize the structure. He even wanted to change a name. This was about a 12-page letter. To this day, there's a page and a half redacted. Now, the only body that would have the power and prerogative to do that would be the CIA. All right? All right, there's another thing. Jim O'Connell's, I think it's a church committee testimony. He was one of the CIA officers who was involved with the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro. All right, he has like a 60-page deposition. There's about six pages we still redacted on that one. All right, and I can go through the whole list of things that I've seen. All right, so see, this is what I mean about breaking the letter of the law. Now, what do I mean specifically? What I mean is this, that in the JFK Act, it strictly says that if the president does decide to delay declassification, he must write a summary, an unclassified summary, as to why he is doing so. Well, guess what? Neither Trump nor Biden did that. This is what I mean about breaking the letter of the law. All right, and so this is why the Mary Farrell Foundation has had to launch this lawsuit in Northern California, okay, against the uh, Joe Biden and NARA, okay, the National Archives, all right? So it's really kind of disgusting when you really get down to it, you know, that here we are. Here we are, Dave. It's pretty close to 60 years. Oswald did it. And we're still fighting over declassified documents, even though we everybody is supposed to know that Oswald did it. Uh, it's also worth noting, too, the, the, the discussion of a deep state or the deep state has become uh, a political rhetorical cliche. And yet, uh, as superficially different as Biden and Trump might appear to be in many respects, uh, the bottom line is that uh, when the national security wheel really turns, uh, they do not get in the way of some of those uh, revolutions. And uh, I, I think it really is more significant uh, concerning what our country is really like, who really, and I mean this literally calls the shots, than uh, an awful lot of what is abandoned about. Speaking of calling the shots, Jim, uh, is there anything else you wanted to add about the uh, lawsuit and the release or lack thereof of the documents? Okay, can you repeat that again? Is there anything else that you wanted to mention about the uh, Mary Farrell Foundation lawsuit? Uh, oh, yes, and- yes, there is. I, there is something else I think we should mention at least. Uh, as you know, one of the things that Jeff Morley has talked about and which we talked about in the film was George Joannides. Yeah. All right. Now, Jeff talks about this in our film and he's written about it in more than one venue. All right. Um, 
there are 44 documents still being withheld about George Joannidis, which is CIA is trying not to give up. All right. They, let's put it, look, look at it. Let's look at it in the stark daylight sun. The CIA lied to the House Select Committee about George Joannidis. They said he was not active as an agent in 1963, when in fact, not only was he active, he was running the DRE in New Orleans at the same time Oswald was having all these interactions with them in the summer of 1963. All right. They lied to the, um, to the ARB about the Joannides files. In other words, they tried to tell the ARB that there's nothing in here you're going to be interested in. This is just a personnel file. Well, that turned out to be a lie. Okay. All right. There's, as I said, 44 documents about what Joannides was actually doing. One of them is that he was cleared for special intelligence. All right. And then they fought Jeff Morley for eight years. Jeff Morley filed a lawsuit with Jim Lazar to get these documents. All right. The CIA fought him, appealing each decision he won, kicking it back. He would win again. They would appeal again. They would kick. This went on for eight years until Brett Kavanaugh cast a deciding vote against Jeff's lawsuit. And then a day later, he was sworn in. Okay. Uh, he went up to the uh, Capitol Hill to begin the questioning about his qualifications. Now, does anybody really think that Brett Kavanaugh was going to go ahead and vote for Jeff Morley in openness, knowing that Trump had lined him up for the Supreme Court? I don't think so. So this is what I mean. You know, if there's nothing there, then why do you just let it go? All right. Well, it, it, I think, is a self-explanatory situation. Uh, it, it, it's like so, something that I've cited many times over the years, and it, including in some of our interviews, uh, those old Warner Brothers cartoons where Bugs Bunny is in a haunted house, and he knocks on the door and goes, yeah, anybody in there? And the voice goes, no, there's nobody in here, you know? Uh Obviously, if they are withholding information in that context, it is because disclosure would be damaging. Um, speaking of damaging, I, I wanted to pivot, Jim, but we should also mention briefly that uh, George Joannides was running the DRE, the group to which uh, uh, Carlos Bringuere Along, and he had run into Oslo almost literally when he was leafleting outside the international trademark in New Orleans and, uh, then got in a scuffle with him and then faced off with Oswald in the conversation carte blanche uh, on radio station WDSU. Yes. And, and let me add something. One of the things that Jeff put together for the press conference announcing the lawsuit. Okay. 
was he very adroitly put together a montage of the announcers. Back then, there was only CBS, NBC, and ABC, all right? And there was people like Walter Cronkite, David Brinkley, and Chet Huntley, all right, and Howard K. Smith on ABC. He showed the films that they showed that night to incriminate Oswald. And it was him leafleting on the streets of New Orleans. All right. Now, I don't have to tell you then what happened next. Then they got a hold of that debate. All right. On the next night. All right. The debate between him and William Stuckey and, uh, and Butler and, Butler. and, yeah. and Bringier. All right. And see, these were all used to get into the news cycle to incriminate Oswald before he had a trial. All right. And so this, of course, this clearly suggests the usage of psychological propaganda. All right. That only a professional. All right. Would, would know how to manipulate in order to brainwash the public into thinking that the man was guilty. Right. When in fact, of course, Oswald wasn't a communist. All right. And so, so this is very, you know, I, I hate to, you know, I once had a great line about Alan Dulles. Uh, I said, I respect his brains as much as I disrespect the uses to which he puts them. Okay. So, so that's what these guys were doing. That's what these guys were doing. They were setting up Oswald in the summer of 1963. Then a the day of the assassination, all the stuff he thought he was doing as part of the CIA FBI program against the FBCC gets turned on him. All right. Brutally. All right. Uh, two things, Jim. Uh, veteran listeners to this program have heard the WDSU interview with Oswald, uh, Bengay, Jim Stuckey, and uh, Ed Butler. Numerous. Oh, times. WDSU. I'm glad you brought that up because um, this is the network, the channel down in New Orleans, the NBC uh, outpost down in New Orleans, which was part either by conscious uh, motive or by unconscious manipulation. You know, they were being used, okay, as part of this setting up the Oswald thing. I'll give you another example. On the night of the assassination, I'm going to say this again, the night of the assassination, Kerry Thornley, who was supposed to be Oswald's friend, goes down to WDSU and does an interview labeling Oswald, because he knew him in the service, a lifelong communist who wanted to see, uh, you know, the regime overthrown and a communist uh, uh, administration, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, we know for, because we, Garrison had an interview with the guy who walked down to WDSU with Thornley that night, and they went out for a drink afterwards. You know, and he asked him, 
was Oswald. Oh, he goes, no, for God's sakes, no. He goes, <laughs> that whole thing he was doing with the Fair Play for Cuba committee, he wasn't a communist. All right. And so this, and then WDSU, as you know, then in 1967, they served as the, again, an outpost to blast Garrison when Walter Sheridan went down there to uh, prepare his, you know, his uh, hit piece on Garrison that aired on NBC. He used the auspices of WDSU to do it with. All right. And so, and then after the trial, after Shaw was acquitted in 1969, again, they had a program uh, demanding that Garrison should step down as district attorney. And people like Hugh Ainsworth and James Phelan uh, were on the program. You know, so, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. WDSU was very much up to their neck in the JFK assassination cover-up, I think. Oh, no question about it. Yeah. Uh, Jim, there is a topic that we touched on in an earlier interview, but I want to develop it more fully. And one of the things that I think is quite striking about the four-hour version of the documentary, and that is the uh, footage of the interior of JFK's limousine post-assassination. And uh, Admiral Berkeley, and uh, I'll, I'll let you fill uh, review for the audience who Berkeley was. He is an important figure, and we have talked about him before. But he sent an aide, James Young, I believe his name was, to retrieve some skull fragments and a bent bullet from the limousine. And there also was a very obvious crack in the windshield itself, as well as, and this is shown very clearly and, in my opinion, very dramatically in the four-hour version of the documentary, you can see where a bullet impacted very clearly on the rim, the metal rim around the limousine. Plus, uh, there was a doctor from Parkland, his name began with M, I've forgotten his name off the top of my head, but he testified that the interior of the limousine, which also is shown quite dramatically, which is not only not blood, but pieces of, of brain or skull. There's white tissue there. And uh, the bullet, they found a bent bullet in addition to three pieces of skull. And the bent bullet, the obvious point of impact, and again, this has shown that that impact shown very clearly in the documentary and the crack in the windshield, apparently from a bullet fragment, absolutely destroys the Warren Commission's thesis. Uh, I wonder if you would talk about that and, and in particular, what eventually happened to the, the bent bullet and uh, what happened to all this stuff of the limousine? What happened to the windshield? What happened to all the gore and tissue on the inside of the limousine? Longest question I've heard in a long time. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll try and deal with this step by step. All right. Uh, James Young was Admiral Berkeley's first assistant at the White House. All right. 
when Berkeley was coming in on Air Force One, all right, he was Kennedy's personal physician. He had been with them a number of years, all right. He was the only doctor who was at both Parkland, the emergency room, and Bethesda that evening. He called up Young and told him he was going to probably need some help that night, all right? And Young said, okay, fine, all right? And so he reports for duty at the Bethesda morgue, and he gets the order from Berkeley to send out a couple of aides in order to go ahead and retrieve anything that might be left over in the limousine because he thought there were bone fragments there. Well, when the two, I think one of them guys was named Mills, okay? Yeah. When the two aides go out to retrieve the pieces of bone, they also found what you referred to, a bent bullet, okay? So they picked up all this evidence. They brought it back to Young. Young gave it to Berkeley. No, he gave, I think he gave it to Humes first, then to Berkeley. And nobody has seen that bullet since. All right. It just disappeared as a lot of evidence in the JFK case, like Kennedy's brain has disappeared. But as you mentioned, if you look at the inside of the limousine, there appears to be too much damage for just this one bullet, okay? Um, there's, there is, as you mentioned, a very serious dent in the chrome strip above the window. Any, anybody can see this, all right? And that, that was a Lincoln Continental. That was one of the most expensive cars on the market at that time. That was the limousine model. So that was not just a cheap piece of chrome. All right. There was something underneath it. So the dent at that way, you know, that must have been coming in at pretty high speed to do something like that. And then there's this controversy over was the windshield cracked or was the windshield broken? Then there are several witnesses and Dave Mantic has done a nice job putting them together in his recent book saying that there was no doubt in their mind that there was a hole in that windshield, okay? Now, Dave Mantic, I was at the conference he was at in Dallas uh, last month, and he shows frames from the Altkins photograph, which I have to say does look like the, the bullet pierced the windshield, all right? There's also, by the way, I should add, the chrome ashtray on one side of the the car is also dented. So as Jefferson Morley once said, could really one bullet do all this damage to the car when, in fact, we know what the Warren Commission is claiming? You know, they're claiming that the magic bullet went through two people and lodged in Connolly's thigh. We also know that they say that the bullet 
broke in half inside Kennedy, the, the headshot, and landed in the front seat. Okay, so this is very kind of hard to swallow. And then, of course, to conclude the question, I think you're talking about Walter Midget, who was a witness to all this blood and gore and tissue and brain matter in the car, all right? And he actually saw, uh, I believe, a Secret Service man. There's actually pictures of this. A Secret Service man who had a pail and a sponge. Now, can you imagine this? President Kennedy's just been shot. Secret Service guys are supposed to know something about the law and about criminality. The limousine is a prime piece of evidence. All right. There should have been policemen all over that limousine taking pictures. Okay. To preserve it. All right. What the, what the evidence looked like right after Kennedy got to the hospital. All right. And here you have a guy. I think it was Sam Kenny with a pail of water and a sponge sponging down the scene of the crime. This is just almost unbelievable, you know, and this is what has led some people to think, was the Secret Service involved? You know, all right. I don't go that far, but it's a definitely an interesting question. Uh, the limousine again uh, was rebuilt in the immediate aftermath of the assassination. And it is, to my mind, unthinkable, unimaginable that the powers that be were unaware of the legal implications of what they were doing. They were destroying evidence. I mean, it, I, I don't see, Jim, how one could uh, intelligently draw any other uh, conclusion. Uh, you've got the crack in the windshield. How did that happen? You've got what is not only a, a, a bent foam rim uh, around the windshield, but it, it is a very sharp impact. One of the things, again, that I liked about the documentary was that it showed that bend, and it wasn't as though someone had taken a swing at it with a heavy hammer. It ha- has the Bent, it is bent in such a way as it reflects, uh, a projectile, a pointed projectile, uh, ramming into it. And then you've got the bent bullet. Well, where did that come from? You know, it, it, um, the, the fact that the limousine then got renovated, uh, before any of this evidence could have been processed in an appropriate way by the appropriate authorities, to my mind, simply adds to the already very uh, weighty body of evidence that this was an official crime. This was a coup d'etat and uh, that the coordination between powerful elements of federal agencies to do so many of the things that were done, uh, I think it is very telling. Peter Dale Scott, the brilliant Berkeley researcher, uh, made the phrase decades ago that, quote, the cover-up will obviate the conspiracy. And I think this is an example of that.
I agree. Uh, Jim, there is a major figure in the assassination whom we have only spoken of in passing, and uh, he is uh, appropriately treated at some length in the documentary, and that is a Dallas gangster originally coming from Chicago named uh, Jacob or Jack Rubenstein, a.k.a. Jack Ruby, the man who killed Lee Harvey Oswald. And we were told that, you know, he was just a second lone nut and that he wanted to save the Kennedy family the emotional anguish of having to go back to Dallas for the trial. And that's why he killed Lee Harvey Oswald. The film goes into, the documentary goes into Ruby's background, and it is more than a little interesting. Why don't you begin detailing for us who Jack Ruby was, or perhaps it would be more appropriate to say what Jack Ruby was, because he was part of, and here's my favorite word, a milieu that is itself not only interesting, but directly relevant to the political landscape that the Kennedys occupied. Jack Ruby, as Henry Hurt once said, was a man for all seasons. And what he meant by that, this guy had connections everywhere. All right. Now, as you noted accurately, Jack Ruby um, begins in Chicago. All right. And then he had some indefinite ties to a mafia-influenced union up there, waste handlers, okay, up in up in Chicago. And he then mysteriously moves south. And what makes this tantalizing is that he moves south as the Chicago mob was also trying to move into Texas, all right? Okay, and so here comes Jack, all right? And, and Jack begins his career as a sort of combination strip club manager, all right, and also being a servant of many different agencies. For example, the the mob, for example, the police department. He's also involved in CIA gun running. He was also a FBI informant for a period of about eight months. All right. And Jack Ruby, if you had to pick the perfect guy to do what somebody obviously wanted him to do, I don't think you could have gone much better than Jack Ruby. All right. The night of the assassination, as you probably know, and as most of your listeners probably know, Jack Ruby is at Henry Wade's midnight press conference, all right, which is televised, all right. He's disguised himself as a journalist. There's pictures of him with these glasses on, a tablet in front of him with a pen, like he's taking down notes for a journal, all right, that he's report that he's going to hand in, all right. Well, Jack Ruby was not in any way a journalist, but... He does correct a mistake that Wade makes in describing Oswald. And I'm sure you're familiar with what I'm going to say. 
Wade described the group that Oswald was working with that summer as the Free Cuba Committee. And Ruby chimes in and says, no, no, no. Fair play for Cuba Committee. All right. Because the Free, the Free Cuba Committee was the opposite of what the Fair Play for Cuba Committee was about. So there's always been this question, how the heck did Ruby know that? All right. And chime in so forcefully in order to correct that misapprehension. The next day, he again is at police headquarters. His excuse at that time was he was going to go ahead and bring in some sandwiches to these poor, bereft policemen who were working so hard to solve the Kennedy case. All right. Then the climax, of course, is on Sunday. The Warren Commission tried to say there wasn't any evidence that Ruby was at police headquarters that morning. Well, this is absolute baloney. It's malarkey. Let's let's line up some of the evidence. Okay, number one, when Ruby's housemaid called his apartment that morning, wanting to know what time he wanted her to come in, she said it was a strange voice that answered the phone. She didn't think it was Ruby. All right, there's a group of TV technicians at the police headquarters that morning at about 9.40. They all said that, yeah, we saw Ruby there. He was asking when Oswald was going to be coming down on the elevator. Ruby actually got in an elevator, I believe, with a rabbi. Okay. Uh, and the rabbi remembered him. And he said we had, they, they had the same conversation. All right. When do you think... Oswald's going to be coming down, right? So then the capper is that Ruby had gotten one of his uh, girls, Jada, I think her trade name was, all right, um, to call him the next day, all right? And I go into this a lot in Destiny Betrayed, Okay, that it was really Ruby who arranged a phone call, all right, for him to call her so he could go down to the Western Union. Now, see, what you have to understand, the Western Union office is right on the other side of the Dallas Police Headquarters, all right? It's right there. And in fact, if you position yourself in a certain way, you could see the back end of the Dallas police headquarters. In other words, if somebody poked their face out the door or if somebody was on the second floor in the big window, you could see them from the front of the Western Union Station. Now, why is this important? Because the Warren Commission said that Jack Ruby came down the Main Street ramp, the Main Street ramp before he killed Oswald. This is utterly and completely false. This is a lie. All right. First of all, the guy on guard, Vaughn, okay, swore that Ruby did not come down the Main Street ramp. All right. And he passed his lie detector test. All right. Sergeant Flush, 
who the Dallas police avoided, testified to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He said, I was right outside the ramp on the street. My car was parked caddy corner. I was leaning against it because I wanted to see the transfer. All right. Jack Ruby not only did not come down that ramp, he wasn't anywhere near the front of the building at that time. And I know this for a fact because I knew Jack Ruby. All right. Now, Dean, the Sergeant Patrick Dean, who was in charge of security that day and was supposed to have all the doors sealed, he flunked his polygraph test even though he wrote his own questions. All right. If you watch that fantastic film, Evidence of Revision, this is like an eight-part documentary made up of all this incredible footage. It's on YouTube that I've never, I had never seen a lot of it before. Ruby is clearly hiding behind Blackie Harrison. All right. Before Oswald comes out. All right. You can see him playing his day hiding behind Blackie Harrison. Blackie Harrison is again another guy who the day he took his lie detector test went on some drugs and therefore they couldn't get a clear result for his lie detector test. All right. And then as we show in the film, Ruby bursts forth, you know, and with these two horns going off, whether or not that's part of it, I don't know. I just felt it should have been in there. Why do I feel it should have been in there? Because the, the networks had edited that footage. On the day that it was broadcast by NBC, you could hear both horns going off. But they edited out some versions had no horns at all, whereas some had only one. I told Oliver, we should depict this in the original format. I don't know if it means anything. Maybe it doesn't. That's fine. But I just think the public should see it the way that it was originally broadcast. right? And so what happened to Jack Ruby? Somehow, J- Jocelyn West <laughs> becomes his doctor in the Dallas police headquarters when he's uh, coming up for trial. And I don't have to tell you who Jossie West was, right? He was an MK Ultra, uh specialist for the CIA for a number of years. And he goes ahead and passes ver- after, you know, assumingly... Uh, giving Ruby some drugs says that he, he shouldn't be tried as a normal person. He's imbalanced. Okay. And that's, that's the story of Jack Ruby which in any court of law, any defense lawyer for Oswald would be challenging that story from start to finish. Oh, and let me say this. Jack Ruby was very close to Lewis McQuilly. In fact, Lewis McQuilly was his idol. His girlfriend said Jack would have done anything for Lewis McQuilly. McQuilly worked for Traficante at one of his big uh, Havana uh, uh, casinos, all right? And there's pretty good evidence that McQuilly sent Jack Ruby uh, to try and get uh, Traficante out of Castro's jails when Castro took over the island and wanted to get rid of all these mobsters. Los Tropicante, by the way, was a powerful Florida, specifically Tampa, Florida, 
mafioso, where there's, I like to say, more connections than the switchboard. So that, that's who Jim is referring to. Well, uh, but also, he was part of the CIA mafia plots to kill Fidel. Yes, he was. Okay. All right. So that's another very important connection. It was Rosselli, it was Traficante, and it was Giancana were the three mobsters that uh, the CIA reached out to to try and kill Castro. And then, of course, like I said, Ruby ends up meeting him when he was in uh, detention, you know, after the revolution. All right. So th- this is all very, very interesting stuff, which the Warren Commission completely ignored. Uh, by the way, Papa Conte was speaking with another Cuban exile named Jose Alvalon. And when Alvalon opined uh, that <clears throat> uh, JFK would probably be reelected, Papa Conte said, no, Jose, he is going to be hit. And yes, said that yes. a nut will be hired to uh, do the job. So obviously he was, to an extent, at least in the know. Uh, Jim, uh, uh, circling back to the horn blasts, I did not know of those until I saw JFK be visited. Uh, really? You didn't know that there were two going off there? No, I did not know. That was the first I, I had seen of it. Uh, for the benefit of people who have not seen the documentary, the moment Oswald comes into view, being led by Dallas policemen, there is a horn blast, a car horn goes off. And then just before... Ruby lunges at Oswald and shoots him and fatally wounds him. There is another horn blast. And uh, what I'm wondering, uh, Jim, were there any cars in the Dallas PD garage that were not Dallas police cars or, or the or the private? I, well, you know, obviously there were there were some that that were that were not okay, but. Let me explain why I wanted to put this in there. Many years ago, a first-generation researcher, Ray Marcus, calls me up and he asks me, Jim, which version of Ruby shooting Oswald do you have? I said, what are you talking about? What version? He goes, how many horns in the version you have? And I said, one, of course, meaning... What other version was there? Oh, he goes, and you don't have the original one. I go, what original one? He goes, I'll send it to you. You'll understand once I send it to you. So he sent it to me, and I'm watching this thing, and I and I don't know if my mouth dropped open, but that's the feeling I remember when I watched it. I go, holy Christ, the mainstream media is so paranoid about putting this story out there so that it would so it might suggest something they don't want that they actually edited the original NBC feed which is I, I think it's that's to me that's really unbelievable when you when you think about it that's what they're like in the in the top levels of the NBC building the CBS building and the ABC building now look like i said to you I don't know if there's anything to this. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But I believe that the public should see this in its original state. All right, there, there, that's why I watch evidence of revision. That's how I learned about Ruby hiding behind 
Blackie Harrison. You'll never see that on any MSM special about the JFK case. Uh, one question, one observation, Jim. Who was Blackie Harrison? Oh, Blackie Harrison was one of these guys who was very close to Ruby, hung out at his club very often, knew him quite well. And he was also a friend of Dean. Dean was the guy who was in charge of security that day. All right. And this is, this is how obvious this was. Even Bert Griffin, who was a lawyer for the Warren Commission, he felt that Dean was lying about all the doors being secured that day. All right. And he actually blew up at Dean. All right. And this got so serious that Dean wrote a letter to Wade saying, I think they're going to try and go after me. All right. And then Wade and, and Wade and Curry then wrote a letter to Warren. Okay. Saying that what the heck is this guy think he's doing? Or does he really think that the Dallas police were part of this? You know, that kind of thing. And so Griffin had to back off. But he was very suspicious of Dean and Harrison. Okay. All right. And, you know, in my opinion, he was, for once in the whole 10 months that the Warren Commission was in session, for once they actually were on the right track. Look, Dave, as a little kid, when I saw Ruby shoot Oswald, I jumped up into the air because I saw it live. And I go, holy shit. They, they, excuse me. <laughs> holy crap. They killed him. And been, of course, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, why would they do that? Why are, were they afraid he was going to talk? Uh, yeah, um, we are almost out of time in this interview. Uh, a point I wanted to make uh, about the, the car horns, uh, car horns don't honk themselves. And it is difficult to imagine that there was, for example, uh, an, an onlooker or a Dallas policeman uh, making out in the front seat of a car and accidentally hitting the horn. Uh, one, The one blast is just as Oswald is coming into view, and then the uh, second one is just before Ruby springs at Oswald. And the, the <clears throat> spurfled reaction that you uh, just relived psychologically, uh, you know, Oswald, is, uh, Ruby rather, is not in the picture. All of a sudden, he's right there, bang, shoots Oswald and seemingly comes out of nowhere. Uh, I don't think it is unfair to ask whether those horns were some sort of signal. Uh, to which Ruby was supposed to respond. Uh, Jim, we are almost out of time. Kennedysandking.com, uh, Black Ops Radio, and most importantly, uh, the documentary and book. All right. Uh, our website is Kennedysandking.com. Um, today I think we have a, an interview with me and Oliver going up on the website. The woman came down from Canada to do an interview with him from Quebec. Very interesting website. The Black Off Radio, I'm a semi-regular guest on that show, uh, out of Vancouver, Canada, hosted by Leno Sanic. The DVD is, I think, four discs, 
and it's doing quite well. I think it's number six right now in the top ten Amazon documentaries. So if you don't have it, please do. And the book, which I'm very proud of, which contains both screenplays, both the two-hour version and the four-hour version, plus many excerpts from what we couldn't get in to the film. It's a very valuable reference book and an enjoyable thing to read at the same time. Okay, and I should add that neither uh, myself nor this radio station gets any money from uh, any of these undertakings. This concludes for the record program number 1283. Interview number 20 with Jim B. Jamie about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on January 13th of the year 2023. For Jim B. Jamie, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.